Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris with the Surf and Sales Podcast. Um, as always, very excited with our guest today. Um, unfortunately for the Scott Lease fans, Scott's unable to join us. Um, he's actually uh, got life stuff going on. He's, he's got to get his kids to some practices. And that's just the way we roll. So we, we make it work. We thought it'd be more fun. I wanted Scott to come on and like do it from his car on Zoom and like have the kids in the background making faces. But you know, we, we thought the better of that. So anyway, aside from that, let's, let's jump into this. So Justin Welsh is with us today. Um, Justin is one of those LinkedIn guys that you kind of see and know everywhere. When we got online, Justin even said, Hey Richard, it's nice to finally meet you. And I had to think for a second, like, wait a minute, we haven't actually met. I think we've known each other two or three years now on LinkedIn. That's right. Yep. We've yeah. been connected for a while, but never met. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So um, so anyway, so Justin, I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher however I describe you, but I, I'll let you give the name of the company and stuff. But Justin right now is working with early stage founders, uh, SMB, um, does, has an online um, session to help you improve your LinkedIn profile. He likes to say it's, it's for people who are just figuring it out, often the early stage people. And I, and I say, you know what, there's a lot of older people who need to figure it out too. So uh, don't let age be your deterrent. And he's actually going to speak this summer uh, at Saster Europa. So I think that's pretty cool. So Justin, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Great to be here, man. And yeah. like I said, great to finally uh, speak with you. I know. I know. What, what, what is the name of the company right now? Just so I understand, because I know you recently did this. Yeah, I did it. I did it um, just recently when I left Patient Pop and like, I didn't really have a name, so I just called it the official Justin because that was the website URL, and I don't have a right. company name. It's just me and myself and I working uh, with early stage SMB SaaS founders to help them grow their business. Great. What What do you like about those early stage folks? Like, what's what's cool? Yeah, uh, great question. I am. I'm super interested in when like things are not well set up. Like, I always felt like when I was working at businesses. And, you know, everything was figured out or you were in a later stage business and you had like competitor playbooks and everything was already spec'd out. Like they would hand it to me and it's like, you know, what, what fun is it when it's all figured out, right? Mm -hmm. Like the most fun part of this, this whole game is figuring out what to do in the very beginning to separate you from other companies that are like you. And so what, I, I like to get in early and, and figure that stuff out. What, what do you mean by figure it out? Are you talking... Um, I want to, I want to be early stage, like before they have their first customers or are you talking about, you know, go to market strategy or are you talking like, no, they got a couple of customers and now they need to sort of put some foundation around this stuff. Yeah, kind of a ladder, right? Like, hey, we've got some customers. Um, I'm founder selling. I'm, I'm selling all the customers on my own. And I've never hired salespeople or I have and it hasn't gone well. Right. And I'm ready to go out and grab my first two salespeople. Or I'm at, you know, two salespeople and I want to go to 15 salespeople. Right. Um, what's, what's less interesting for me, and it's just my, maybe my personality is like, we've got 200 salespeople and we want to go to 1,000. Right. To me, that is just replication. That's pulling levers and getting 1% to 2% better across the board. Yeah. I like laying foundation and really explosive early growth. That, that to me is just a lot more fun. Yeah. What do you, let's back up a little bit. So, you know, we always love to sort of start with the origin story, the genesis of Justin, right? Um, you know, what were you like as a kid? Did you always sell as a kid? Like when, you know, when did you know sales was for you? Like give us a little bit of background on Justin. Yeah. I was super timid, um, more of a shy, shy kid. My dad was in sales for a, about 41. He's still in sales. He's, he was in sales for like 41 years full time. He retired and now he's working like three days a week, still selling. And he was always an individual contributor. So, um, you know, I looked at my parents' house and the cars in the driveway and I thought like, hey, this is, this is pretty awesome. This is sort of the be all end all. And as I grew up, like, I don't know, I was timid and shy and like mm -hmm. kind of out of shape and like got picked on a lot. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I changed a little bit as I got older, but I never sold. Like I was really scared to do a lot of stuff so how like did that. You, I mean, cause I, I was probably that way. I think yeah. there's a lot of us, you know, there's a lot of these stories around how the introvert is the better salesperson these days. Right. And yeah. the extrovert. Um, and I think there's data to support both, but so what transitioned for you? did something happen in high school or college or you got out of college and you're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. What you're doing, you know? Like, yeah, I got out of college and I kind of found myself a little bit and who I was as a person. And I came out of my shell a little bit 
And I got into sales because I thought it's what I was supposed to do. That is why I got into sales. No other, no other reason because I didn't know what, like, what the hell else I was going to do, to be right. quite, quite frank with you. And um, I got into sales and didn't like find success. I sucked at it for six years. Um, you know, people have kind of, I've probably told the story a few times, but like got a job at 21, um, pharmaceutical, went through four different companies uh, by the time I was 28 and got fired from all of them. And uh, just couldn't figure it out, like was not responsible, um, spent most of my time working out, partying, uh, just kind of didn't understand. Yeah, I I didn't didn't understand it, right? I didn't understand responsibility. And the big change for me came at 28. And, um, you know, I got a call from a company called ZocDoc in New York City. They were a tiny little company of nine people at that time. Um, They put me in a bus from Allentown, PA into New York City, and they wanted me to come interview for this open sales role that they had, a second sales hire. And when I got there, like super really smart people, late at night, drinking beer, eating pizza, working really hard, and I was like, whoa, like I've never seen this kind of energy and effort, like it was New York City and it, it felt really cool. And um, I wanted to work there. Like I loved the idea, I loved the people I interviewed with, I loved the product, I loved the city, and so I moved there. And Richard, like for some really strange reason, like it was like this light switch, right? Like this perfect intersection of people, smarts, product, energy, city, where it just like clicked. And sure. overnight, that was that was the that was the difference for me, man. Yeah. But what 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 changed in your sales process? What changed in your mentality? You said something clicked. Yeah. Like what did you stop doing and what did you start doing? Yeah. I wish I could say I stopped partying. That's not true, but I stopped spending all my time focused on um, things that didn't make me better at sales and started self-educating. That was like the massive difference. I decided okay. I wanted to be really, really good at this new role. Like this is a role I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to get fired for you know fourth or fifth time. So I started educating myself, reading, studying, staying at the office, asking the best people there how they did what they did, learning from the CEO, just being like totally obsessed with this new role. Yep. And to me, like that's the difference that I see a lot of people go through is yeah. self-education. Or they're like, hey, I like this. I'm going to spend time doing this because it's fun. And, and so that was it. There is no education for salespeople, right? Like right. Uh, to some extent that's, that's job security for you and I, um, you know, but there's not, a, I mean, there are some universities that have a sales major, but not a lot. Right. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I was sort of a general business guy at the university of Arizona um, sort of, sort of digging into that. Do you remember like the first couple of sales books you read just curious, like way back, you know, all of, you know, cause you're like, you're younger than me. So it must've been like five years ago. Um, you know, what, what were those, what were the books you first read? Yeah. I think the first book that I read was mastering the complex sale by Jeff Tull. Um, and I think I read it because I was under the assumption that like all sales were complex and I was selling a $3,000 average contract value product. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't complex. Um, but right. to me, it was like, whoa, this is complex. So I picked up Jeff Tull's book and read it. And in a really weird series of events, his group came in and ended up being consultants at that business many years later. Um, but I read that. But it wasn't really that. It was more sitting with Javier Rosas and Ryan Stam and Cyrus Masumi, the CEO, at 9 o'clock at night and being like, let's role play again. Like, how do you handle this objection? What did you do mm-hmm. in this situation? Why did that doctor close? And, mm-hmm. and just like being obsessed with being really excellent at that. That was the difference. Yeah. Talk, just because people don't know what ZocDoc is, what, what yeah, is yeah. that? Um, so they just have some context from you. Sure. You use OpenTable to book restaurant uh, uh, you know, reservations. ZocDoc, the first thing, uh, first service to offer that for doctor's appointments. So yeah. it was a platform where you could go on, plug in your insurance, pick a time and instantly book an appointment with your doctor. Got it. And it would, it would do all the back end with your insurance? All the back end with your insurance, you fill out your paperwork, still exists, big company, still use it to this day. And I was out there selling doctors. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, so you finally got into a sales role that you really liked um, and that you were in a, in a product you could be behind and be passionate about. Um, do you find that from that pharmaceutical sales perspective to moving to ZocDoc that, that you had more passion about what ZocDoc was doing as opposed to just being another, you know, pharma rep? Yeah. I don't think the pharma rep had a lot of impact. I think it was the challenge that it solved for me. Um, Like I'm sure you've booked doctor's appointments. It Mm -hmm. sucks. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a crappy process. It's gotten better, and but yes. It, it has, but back then this is 2009, right? right. So this 10, you know, 11 years ago. Right. And back then, like, I don't know, what insurance am I on? Do I have a PPO or an HMO? Does this doctor take it or just sort of take it or like out of network? Right. And so figuring all that out was a miserable process. And right. so knowing that I was part of like solving a problem and building technology that was brand new because no one had booked doctor's appointments online at that time. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that this was brand new and like a sexy, new, cool technology, I loved that. Like I felt like I was solving a problem. Got it. So, so you went from, so did you start as an AE or an SDR? Like what was it? No such thing as SDRs. Like right. um, uh, predictable revenue was just being written at that yeah, time. Yeah, sure. So Definitely. yeah, so like I started as an AE with no support. I was in the field. I was knocking yeah. on doors all day. You know? Got it. Got it. Yeah. And um, and and so from there, how long were you there? And you got promoted to what? Yeah, I, I stayed there almost five years, okay. and I was an individual contributor for just six months. Okay. And um, six months in, they actually moved me to San Francisco. And um, we had uh, hired a team out there and not put a manager and it was not doing well. So I was there as like a quasi sales manager and individual contributor, hiring new people, building the team, carrying my own quota. I spent 12 months there. I moved from San Francisco to Boston, launched that market, spent 12 months there, went to LA. You um, became the launch guy. Yeah, I became the launch guy. And then I, I moved to LA and managed five states and 20 people. And then I moved back to New York and reported to Cyrus, the CEO, building special projects. Got it. So let me let me come back to, uh, you know, we see this a lot in sales leadership, right? And this hybrid role, right? Oh, be a manager and carry a number. Uh, now that we have more knowledge than maybe we did back then, right? Like I think through through some of the hard work you went through, do you like that model? Do you, because you went through it, do you see it as a good model? Do you see it as a challenge? Like, I have an opinion, but I want yours first. Yeah, I see it as um, a finite challenge where, um, so let me give you an example. At my last business, we had a few folks in in our team who wanted to be managers. And rather than just throw them into management, um, we didn't do that. But we also didn't say like, here's eight people and you're now the manager, but you also have a quota. So go like prove that you can do it. We said, you know, here's two new people that we want to see if you can help ramp and we're going to reduce your quota. And our expectation is you spend 50% of your time with this reduced quota and 50% of your time helping mentor and manage these folks to get them up to speed really well. And you do it for a finite period of time. And at the end of that time, we step back and we observe and say, did you do a really good job quantitatively and qualitatively? And if you did that, then we, we, we advance. And did that work? Yeah, it, it worked for us. We, we got, like, I think of Kyle Bear, one of our East Coast field managers at Patient Pop, came out of that program. Max Kim Brown, my director of field sales, came out of that. They, it was really good giving them some responsibility before you gave them the full job. What, what do you think about the people who succeeded in a hybrid role made them successful? I'll, I'll, I'll pepper it for you. I'll give you some yeah. time to think about it. Right? Yeah, no, I, I, I have a, I have a thought on it, and I think, I think it's the I think it's time management, probably. I think it's organization. Mm-hmm. I think it's being able to understand how to best balance your time. Because mm-hmm. as a salesperson, you can be a lone wolf. Right. Right. You can actually be good enough to have little process, although I would not uh, suggest it. But when you're coaching and managing folks, even if it's two, you have to have a process. Right. You have to have a schedule. You got to have things you do. So it's, it's people that are well-organized and well-disciplined, I think, that do well. Yeah. How would you, now that you have that, right? Because I think there's a lot of people who listen and go, well, great, that, that sounds good. <laughs> how, do you, how do you, for lack of a better phrase, interview for it or talk to your rep that you're going to put into that position? How would you what are some early indicators that you think this person can be that organized with their time? Yeah, I think it's really diving into their sales process to begin with. So for example, Richard, I can think of a bunch of folks that I've had on my sales teams in the past Mm -hmm. and one in particular who was really excellent, but I know that if I sat him down and said, Hey man, you've got a $50,000 quota this month, build me backwards from 50 K how you're going to get there. He would tell me like, I don't know. I'm just going to go out and do my thing. Right. Right. Like that was, that was his approach was like doing his thing, which is not the approach to management. Now other, other people would be like, well, my average contract's 10 K, which means I need to get five wins and I win 25% of my deals. So I need to perform Mm -hmm. 25 demos and you know, 60% of them show up and they back their way out of their number into an activity metric all the way to the top. 
those are the people that will generally do better managing okay. people. Okay. What are the things that, and we'll flip it on the other side, right? Aside from this, hey, you know, I'll just get there. And, and look, God bless those people, right? Sure. You know, they cause a lot of pain and angst for leadership, but they hit the number, right? And we always say, well, we're willing to put up with a little bit of bullshit if they hit the number. Um, what are some other, are there any other indicators that would say, God, you know, I know you want this, but I need to see this before I, you know, st start to let you do that. Yeah, I think there's some qualitative stuff, which is, um, do your peers already come to you uh, in the same way that they will if you are given this role? So, for example, that's great. There, that's a great question to ask or think yeah, about. Yeah, there, there are people I've put in that role that I shouldn't have, and one of the indicators would have been that people didn't consider them uh, to be someone that they could approach during a difficult time or to figure out a problem or to solve a challenge. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have the buy-in from the people and you don't have the trust and you don't have the respect, it just becomes more challenging mm -hmm. to suddenly give that to them with a title. Mm -hmm. that, comes, that comes to me with experience and with, with help and with nurturing your relationship with mm -hmm. your peers. So if you're not seeing that, that to me is like a qualitative indicator. Got it. Got it. Well, that's really good. That was not something we'd sort of plan to talk about, but I, I know this comes up. I'm not a huge fan of the hybrid model. Sure. Um, if you're, if people are going to do, because I, I just don't think people can do two things at once very well. And so many times upper management has this unrealistic expectation of what it really mm -hmm. takes. Um, and they think, oh yeah, we'll knock 20% off your quota. And it's like, really? You want yeah. me to do half the time and still hit 80? Like, you know, it just like the math doesn't work. Um, so, so with, with that being said, um, let's sort of talk about you moved to San Francisco or, or you moved somewhere. What was the difference between going from, from zero to two reps to then zero to 10 or 20 reps? And what did you start to notice in the process that would start to break? Right. And, and you can even pull from your own experience, right? Yeah. What breaks at 10 reps or 20 reps that doesn't break at a handful? Yeah, it's repeatability. Um, I think when you have two or three reps, everything that you do can be ad hoc, right? Like you got Jim over here and Mary over here and they can be treated two very different ways and have two very different one-on-ones and you can meet them with them at different cadences and different times. And that's right. all fine and dandy. It's two people, who cares, right? Um, when you have 10 people or 15 or 18 vying for your time, you have to be really, really consistent and repeatable with the way you do everything. Because mm -hmm. if you don't, what you get is people saying, well, how come, you know, Jim got 60 minutes and I only got 45 or 30. The reason I'm not hitting my quota is because you're not spending enough time with me. How come you missed our biweekly oh, one-on-one -on -one when you hit all, you know, you all that stuff? That. You don't oh, still hear the, like, like, that's my nine and 11 year old. You were in his room reading at yeah. that time for 30 minutes and you only gave me 20. Like, oh my God, does that still yeah. exist? Yeah, it does. It does. But, but I think like, it, honestly, like with like fair reason, right? Like if I'm a manager and I'm not well organized and I've got 15 people and I'm blowing off one-on-ones and I'm not meeting with people on time and I'm shortening things up, like, I don't know, what does that tell the person that you're meeting with? Yep. To me, it's that you're not important. Yep. And, and to me, that comes through in the job performance. Yep. So as humans, we naturally pick favorites. We just will. It doesn't matter if we say we won't, we will. So you have to have a really consistent, repeatable process as your team grows and yeah. people don't. How do you, so this is a really important thing for people managing one-on-ones and groups and stuff like that. Um, how do you make sure the one-on-ones go off? How do you, because sometimes you're the manager, Justin, right? And you've still got the CEO who wants your time or something, but you've got all your meetings scheduled. Mm -hmm. How do you manage up to not let those people pull you out of your one-on-ones? expectations. Um, I've had uh, both unreasonable and reasonable CEOs right. in, my, in my career. And I try and set the expectation when I come in that, yes, I work for you 100%, right? Everybody knows that. But like the team that depends on me is the team that is below me. And right. if you put me in this role and you give me enough autonomy and you trust me to do well, then the number one priority is to ensure that my team has the support that they need to right to be successful. Now, I also scheduled my schedule in a very particular way where if my CEO needed time, 
I knew that I always had at least an hour block of time every day where we could sound the alarm bells and I could be in his office and, you know, at some point in the day, it might not be in the next 10 minutes, but it might be in the next two hours. But I always had that sort of like ad hoc time pushed aside to the, uh, to the side. Yeah. So I want to repeat what you said, because I think this is the part that, that really need, people want to understand is that one, go create a, I call it a buffer, right? Mm-hmm. And you can have it at different days, different times, right? You know, it could be nine to 10 one day and 12 to one another day, whatever. And you also kind of use it as makeup time for stuff you just could, haven't been able to get to. At least that's what I would do, right? But yep. then, you, then you can also use it for, oh, you know, when the CEO says something like, you know, I've got my one-on-ones today, you know, at this time, can we do it at this time? And, and part of it is you as a leader have to push back to the CEO, right? Professionally. And I think a lot of people are, they're either afraid to do it or they've got a little bit, and this was my problem. I know this is that I, I had a, a daddy issue where I wanted attention from that, that male leadership figure, like, cause I didn't yeah. get it from my own dad. Right. Like I know that. And so when they would ask and I would be like, yeah, I'll be there right now. And I blow off the one-on-one when I now have learned that, you know, and I learned it a while ago is that if I said, Hey, I got my one-on-ones and we're covering these three deals. Can we do it at another time? You know, the CEO will absolutely be accommodating. They absolutely want you to do what Justin's totally. been explaining, what I'm suggesting. So I appreciate that. Um, let's, let's talk about, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Richard, really quickly. Yeah. So I want to tell you this very, very quick story. My wife told me when I took this job at Patient Pop, I was a first-time executive, 32 years old, stretch VP, right? Guy who's going to only make it to 1 million and they were going to replace me. That was probably the whole plan, right? right. I made it to 60. So, you know, it was, it was a wild ride. But um, she told me in the beginning, like, don't make yourself available all the time, yes. right? Because you'll set the expectation that you're always available. And I can recall in my sixth month on the job, new VP, I sat down in LA in a conference room. I was living in New York City and they said, what's something that we're doing that's you know, upsetting you or bothering you? And I said, when you call me at five o'clock LA time and it's 8 p.m. New York time, I feel as though you don't respect my time. Right. And I, was, I remember being real red in the face and real nervous when I was saying that but it just stopped happening. Yep. So to me, it was a great thing to do. And I, I thank my wife, Jennifer, for that advice. Absolutely. Let's kudos, kudos to all our wives. Right? <laughs> exactly. They help us get out of our own way a lot. Right. That's right. Um, totally. So, so to, and, and to the husbands and the wives and the significant others and to the, uh, to the, to the non-gender dynamics, like whoever your partner is, it's super important. Um, totally. One that you have a strong one but one who can sort of call you out on your own stuff. Like probably don't, don't get said enough. Scott and I are thinking about doing a, an episode with our wives where we're like, Hey, cool. what's it like to live with us? Like, what do you, <laughs> we think Count be, me out for that one, man. What's that? Count me out for that one, man. Not, well, it's not you. I need, I need your wife. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, so, um, I bet I could probably post on LinkedIn. Hey, we're doing this episode. Who has a significant other who'd like to be on it? And I guarantee you would be filled. Yep. <laughs> um, totally. Talk about going from zero to 50 reps, right? So when you got to patient pop, how big was it? Uh, one rep. One rep. Yeah I, right. yeah, I got there just one rep, no revenue, and um, okay. took it all the way to 140 reps and just, just shy of 60 million. But from, okay. from, from we, one to 50. Hold on one second before you do that. You know, we talked about what can break from one to 10 or one to 20, and absolutely it's about the process, right? Like it's 100% dialing in on the sales process, following it. Um, what breaks, what starts to break or be, needs to be adjusted um, at the team and rep level, but also at your level as a manager or a leader when you go from 20 to 50? Mm-hmm. Um, at the team and rep level, it is installing A-grade players. Mm-hmm. Um, as the team grows to 50, right, or 100 or 150, you no. just <laughs> But at 50, yeah. we're going to sure. dive into the others. But sure, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll, stay, from, stay, stay at 50. So the team grows to 50, and suddenly, like, your bandwidth, you just don't have the bandwidth, right? You can't be everywhere at once. And it is so crucial that you hire people who are A-grade players and put them in roles that require A-grade people. And I think what I see often at companies that are going from zero to 50, um, that they're just, like, so desperate to promote and to get somebody into the role, they get a B or a C player in a role that 
you absolutely require an A player, right? right. So at the rep, rep and manager level, like that has to be the number one focus. Mm-hmm. At, at my level, it's becoming mm-hmm. a different person. It's becoming a different executive. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a VP of sales, and I, I throw up air quotes, like, and you have 10 reps, you're a glorified manager. Yep. Is what it is, right? And when you have 50 people, now you're a VP. And suddenly, you know, um, you're overwhelmed. Like this overwhelm that comes in from not being able to control things the way that you used to be able to control them becomes really challenging. So time management in organization and also beginning to work cross-functionally at the executive level, Mm -hmm. across the board from CS to marketing to product to help get things done that you used to be able to get done on your own. Those things change as you grow. So talk, talk to me a little bit more about this A player thing, right? Because it's hard to promote A players, right? It's hard to find, you know, just because you're a good sales rep doesn't mean you're a good manager. I agree. Right? Like, like and we've heard this, and this is what I've, I learned this from a coach. Uh, her name is Madeline McNeely. She's out of Boston. She was my business coach. But she taught me something really simple, which was we are often promoted in sales because we are content and revenue generation experts. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in there is the word managing people and nowhere in sales does anybody teach you how to manage people. They teach you how to manage a process. They teach you how to follow a process. And in fact, they probably teach you how not to manage people because they just tell you to avoid those emotional issues. Sure. So how do you find that if you're going to promote from within, you know, whether it's that, that sales EQ, right? That, that's sort of the new buzzword. How do you, what are the things you're looking for in that person to promote from within to make you think that they're going to be an A plus manager, right? Cause I've seen A plus, I've seen A plus reps become, mm-hmm. you know, D minus managers. Me too. Right? Yeah, totally. I think it comes back to some of the stuff that we were talking about a little bit earlier where, I mean, I, I know that you have a strong opinion on this like quasi sales manager, individual or contributor. And that's, right. it sounded like it's because there were some unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if you do that and there are realistic expectations where you're like, Hey, you're, you're going to spend 40% of your time coaching and we're going to drop your quota by 50%. And you're like, Oh, that sounds fair. I love to see how people do when given that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And there are two different ways that you can look at someone's ability to become a good sales coach or sales mm-hmm. manager. Mm-hmm. When you give them a couple of reps, number one, do the reps get better? Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Do they get better? Right. Mm-hmm. But number two, you make it a really transparent and candid process where the reps underneath them can share true feedback on the actual personality and coaching and leadership style of the person that you're giving. Because mm-hmm. if you see people getting better, but you go and you survey the reps and they say like, this is really challenging. I don't like working for this person. You've mm-hmm. got a, you've got a mixed bag. Now, if you say, I love working for this person, but uh, the results aren't there, then you still have a C player. But when people say like, I've gotten three times better at my job. I absolutely love working for this person. They care about me. They're coaching me. They spend my time. To me, that's why I love that role. And I can recall putting a young man, Jess Strickland, uh, at my last business in that position. And the feedback was so incredible. I knew he was going to be this amazing inside sales manager. Mm -hmm. He was and is now the director of inside sales. So I love that, that experiment where other people, you know, they don't, they don't like it. So. Yeah. What are the things, and that's great. Like, and again, you know, I sort of bounce back and forth in this conversation about what do we look for in the manager? Now I got to look at Jeff, at Justin. I was about to say Jeff. Um, yeah. Here. Um, but so Justin, what do you have to start to let go of? Because this is the hard part, right? Um, there are pieces of things that you like and you have to let go of them. I think what are the things you let go of and what was probably the hardest thing for you to let go of? I think the hardest thing for me early to let go of was, you know, we were an SMB business. So our contract value was 13,500, 13,500 bucks. Like every once in a while, you get that 200K monster in your pipeline, right? And I'm like, ooh, I want to go close that because that's a lot of my revenue or I want to go help or I want to go coach that. Like you have to give up control of a lot of that stuff and you have to trust your team and trust your management and your leadership. Um, You have to give up, you know, consistently diving down into the weeds, into the granular metrics of your reps. You have to start managing more at the manager and the director level. And for me, that was really hard. 
Uh, I'm a control freak naturally. You can ask anyone who knows me. I'm a very, very much a control freak. Um, so what I did in order to sort of alleviate that was I thought about what's the thing that I can do at my level that will increase the likelihood that the results below me will go well, right? Yeah. So I started focusing nearly all of my time on recruiting those A players and not at the rep level, not even at the manager level, at the leadership level. Because when you start to install A players at the leadership level, you multiply yourself, which is amazing. Now, you probably know I hired Kevin Dorsey, right, out of Service Titan in Indipation right. Pop, VP of Inside Sales. Like, I just took all the stuff that I would normally do and set it on Kevin and said, here you go. And of course, I had to still worry about it. Like, I'm the, v the SVP of sales at this point in time. But like, I trusted that he had it taken care of. And so I could go work on field and channel and partners and all the other stuff that I, I wasn't able to work on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, I think you just gave me the the title of this pot, this episode, which is how does a control freak give up control, right? That's right. Like, yeah. but, but I think everybody's that way. Like, I think there's there's something in the DNA on on leadership. I wouldn't say it's just sales. I could see it in marketing. I could see it in engineering. I can see it at the CEO level. Like, how do you trust that part of the process, right? Um, which which is great. So I want to, I want to, this sort of dovetails into something, right? Like at some point at different parts of your life and your career, and I, I've heard you allude to it, is, is this thing around self-doubt and confidence, right? So you had a lot of self-doubt moving sure. from one farmer deal to the next and then over to ZocDoc, or is that right? ZocDoc, yep. right? Yep. And then, and so that, and you were able to work through that. Then you get into something like patient pop and then you have to go and scale that. And for me, as you said, you even said it yourself. It's like, I got to let go of stuff. Um, how did you know, how do you coach yourself to have the confidence to let go? Hmm. Um, I think, so the thing that I dealt with through that was this idea of imposter syndrome. Like okay. that. I'll have it. I wasn't the right guy for the job, mm -hmm. right? I was 30, 32 or 33 when I got that job. I was definitely a stretch VP, like I said, and suddenly the company's at 30 million, right? And recurring revenue. And I'm like, whoa, I thought I was going to make it to one or three, right? And so you have this doubt of like, do I know how to do this? Am I the right guy for the job? And I think the best way that I've figured out how to handle that self-doubt is by being objective. And so what I mean is, looking historically back at your data, like your performance, your quarters, all the things that are going well, and stripping it and putting it on a piece of paper and saying, like, here are your results, right? Here are all the things that have happened. If those weren't your results and they were someone else's results and you read 105% to goal, 110% to goal, 140% to goal, would you objectively say that this other person is doing a good job and is the right person for the job? Mm -hmm. You would, but yep. we don't do that for ourselves. We read 105, 110, 140, and we say, yeah, but, or yeah, it wouldn't have happened unless, and we insert all these excuses, mm -hmm. and you have to stop being subjective, uh, subjective stop mm -hmm. thinking about those things, and be really objective with your results. Yeah, so I just, I want to, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to repeat that for people, is like, we are all very subjective about ourselves, we're all harder on ourselves, but I loved how you described it as subjective versus objective because it does let you do that. And I think about the times I've ever gone back to update my LinkedIn profile or my, or my resume, and I'm like, I hate doing this. It's like writing a term paper. And then you get done and you see what you've actually accomplished. You actually feel really good, right? Like you look, oh, wow, I, you know, I, I knew I hit my goals, but gosh, when I see it every month or every quarter or you know, three out of four quarters, now I do see that I'm, I'm worthy. I don't have this imposter syndrome, right? And I, and that, to your point, that's the objectification um, that you're talking about, which I think is really, really good. What, um, where did you, like, so you go into this role, right? And you're going from one to 3 million to 5 million to 10 million. You start to scale out the teams. All of a sudden they're like, okay, Justin, go build out a channel play. And you're like, and I'm sure this is one of those places where you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I mean, I know what it is, but what the fuck do I do? Like, how do yeah. I... How did, you, how did you educate yourself as you got thrown those new challenges? It's a great question. I don't have a great answer, but I'll tell you what happened, right? So um, I had never built a channel org 
and I didn't know how. And so I was very candid. By the way, another lesson learned, like, be candid. Tell people when you don't know how to do yeah. things. There's no point in saying you know how to do something if you don't know how to do it. Right. So I told my CEO and said, like, hey, I don't know how to do this. All right? So we got to find someone who does. So we went out and we hired, like, three consecutive channel leaders, and none of them worked out. And I had this guy on my team, Robert Palumbo, who was, like, dabbling in it as an individual contributor. And, like, right. he was having some success. And I was like, why don't we give – Robert, the opportunity, the same way that you gave me the opportunity back in the day mm -hmm. and let it report to me. And I don't know how to do it, but I'll like trust that he does and push him off in that direction. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. We gave yeah. it to Robert, this individual contributor, and he crushed it. Like yep. absolutely turned this partner from like 2 million to 15 million over two years, got a bunch of other partners. And every time that we came to the board meeting or it came to talking in depth about the channel team. Like I was just very honest. I was like, Hey, I don't know. I manage Robert. Robert manages all the other stuff on the channel side. Yep. The thing I do really well is put competent people in positions yep. to be successful. Yep. And so I always just brought him in and it's like, Hey, it's time for you to come talk about what's going well in channel because I don't know enough at a granular level to be, uh, to be helpful here. So right. to me, I, I take chances when something looks right and it's probably not always the best advice to follow, but I just had this, this feeling with him. Yeah. We hear this a lot. Right. And, uh, I think it takes a really special leader. I think I've been the victim of it. I know some other people have where it's like, okay, I can get you from zero to 10 million. Right. And I've never taken someone to 20 million because every time I get to 10 million, they're like, okay, Richard, you know, we're going to go get somebody else to take us to the next level. Right. And it can go from 20 to hundred and then hundred to IPO. Right. Like that's sort of the, what we see in here in the trenches. Um, the one piece of advice I would give people is, you know, and I think this is what you used to do when you first started getting better at sales is well, go research it. If I don't know how to build, like, like this didn't exist for me in the nineties, how to build a channel org, how to do better interviewing. I didn't, it was not innate in me to go Google that. Right. You know, um, I will date myself and, you know, we would Alta Vista stuff. Like I'm sure half the people will Google it, everybody. Um, but, um, and so I think as you start to grow, my piece of advice is you do need to start thinking ahead. I remember I had a VP of sales once. Um, his name was Rock Versace. He was just on, on the podcast. And I remember him coming to me in like September or August one year going, Richard, what's your 20, you know, 2012 plan look like? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what do you want to do in 2012? And I was like, dude, it's September. You keep hounding me for numbers and hitting this quota and whatever. And he was teaching me that I do need to take five months to figure it out. And I didn't know what I was doing. And if I'd have been smarter, I would have been able to go, oh, well, I think we should grow the team from here to here. I don't know. I've never done that. Or I, or if I have questions, I should start to Google it. So you sort of have to plan, you know, in advance those things, right? Totally. Um, and totally. Then I, the year that, that I missed at Patient Pop was the year that I didn't, play, I didn't plan well. That was the one year I missed when I didn't plan well. Okay. That's what it is. Yeah. And, and then the other piece is giving someone the shot right? Somebody always gave us a shot, right? If you've got a shot, if you've gotten from zero to 10 million, they should absolutely be giving you a shot to get to 25. And, and the leader, in my opinion, should be coming and saying, look, next year, we're going to go to 25 million. We want you to do it, but you need to start researching and figuring it out. Right? That yep. to me is a good leader, right? Same thing about sales manager. If I'm a sales manager, if I'm you and I need to promote a rep to manager, I want to do this. You need to go, for lack of a better phrase, go research sales management and write me a two-page term paper on it. Tell me what you're going to do. Go learn about it. And, and, and those are the pieces that I think have been missing, particularly in the SaaS world, right? Um, I'm sure it's very different once you get from 20 to 100 million, but I still think that person deserves a shot as well as 100 to IPO. If someone gets you at 100 million, why shouldn't they be the one who gets you to the IPO, right? Um, hopefully by then they've got mentors and yeah, figured that out. I also think it's on the leader, the sales leader, right? Like for, for example, there are sales leaders who will try and go from 20 to 50 and then from 50 to hundred and just will not know what they're doing. And it'll become very obvious that they're over their head. And as a sales leader, who's running a big business, it's your responsibility. In my opinion, it is your responsibility to throw up the white flag when mm -hmm. you can't, when you can't go any further. That's mm -hmm. what I did. Like 
I don't have an ego here, man. Like I'm not trying to pretend that like uh, I was on my way to 200 million there and just got tripped up. Like I got to about 50, 55 million and just really started struggling. Like I just really started losing control. You know, my health wasn't in good shape. Like my relationships weren't in good shape. I was really, really tired and overworked. And like, I just threw up the white flag. It was mm -hmm. like, Hey, I, I can't, I, I don't think I can go much further than this. And that's why I have an amicable relationship with that company, just like all the other companies that I've, I've gone far and deep with. And yeah. that is to me, the most mature and responsible thing that you can do as yeah. a leader. Yeah. So a uh, couple of more questions for you um, sure. before we let you go. So let's, you know, one of the trends we're seeing, there are two trends we're seeing I want to talk about. One is sort of the emergence, the merging of sales and marketing. Uh, which we've been seeing for a while, right? ABM came along in the last year or two, uh, or well, probably a little bit longer than that. Uh, sure. The CRO title has come along, which I also think is a part of that process. Um, do you see, what are you seeing with sales and marketing? And, and it could be that you're still working with those sort of smaller early stage companies that they're still not, not in a bad way, but they're still sort of siloed because they need to be, mm -hmm. right? What, do you think that trend's gonna continue or, or do you have any visibility to it? I mean, I think it depends. I think as you move into this ABM world where you have a smaller TAM and you have really big accounts with lots of decision makers inside of it, I think sales and marketing starts to sort of merge because you have to be really pinpoint like a sniper rifle, right? You got to get in there and find all your different decision makers. And this, this ABM becomes really complex mm -hmm. with smaller deals right? Going out and kind of knocking off one and two, uh, you know, deals that are you know, 10,000 bucks a, a pop. I think it's not emerging. I think it's really, um, really working together at, at the same level. So if I think about patient pop, as we grew really big, I had this peer named Jared Jost, and he is still the VP of marketing there today. And he and I, we weren't merged together. I didn't manage marketing, but he and I sat next to each other right? We, we were in the same office all the time. We were having a meeting every single day. Like we were managing the funnel together. Every move that I made, he was privy to. Every move that he made, I was privy to. So we were like, you know, like brothers. And so to me- How did that happen? How did you guys form that bond? Did you guys go out and get drunk one night in, in a bro room? <laughs> or like, like, was there- how did We you did that, but I don't know if that's- that. <laughs> Yeah, we, we definitely did that, but I don't know that that's necessarily what, what made our relationship so good. But, um, you know, I think we just recognized that we each depended on each other. And I, I think I got really lucky that Jared is a mature, responsible leader. And what I often see in the world of like SaaS and especially in sales and marketing where egos are big is yeah. like, I want the credit. No, I want the credit. And it's like, who fucking cares? Right. No offense, but like, how about you and I sit down together? And we figure out together how we're going to approach this big, big challenge and this big, big number. And then we work together to put a plan in place. So let me, this is great. <laughs> let me ask you this. At Patient Pop, and do you believe that marketing should carry a revenue number? Not yes. an MQL. You do. Say it louder. Yes. Yes. Yes, everybody. For those in the back of the room. Yes. Marketing should carry a revenue number. Did, does does uh, Patient Pop do that? Yes, they do. 100%. Awesome. And yep. how do you, so I think for me, I think that's a big piece of it, right? Because if my marketing leader is MQL driven, right? And I'm revenue driven. Those are two very different things, right? Those are two totally different things. So how do you think you guys, and what's his name again? Cause I, I want to give Jared. Jared. Yeah, Jared. Yep. So J and J get together, right? And you know, does Jared, freak out when he sees this big revenue number anymore? No. So this is where I'll give Jared like some really big credit. Uh, giving Jared a revenue target was not patient pops idea. It was Jared's idea. So, um, Wait, so he, your VP of marketing, right? And maybe yeah. it's an SVP now. I don't know. Hopefully. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, Jared said, Hey, I need a revenue target. And so what do you think made Jared think that he needed the revenue target? because he doesn't care about credit. He cares about success. Like if you want credit, like then do, do MQLs. Like he's a good marketer. He can likely find MQLs. MQLs are not 
they're in a box, but they can be at the highest level, like this is the best and this is like the crappiest MQL, right? And it's still mm -hmm. an MQL, but finding revenue is hard. Mm -hmm. And Jared wanted, Jared wanted the business to succeed. Mm -hmm. He wanted to, of course, be successful on a personal level, but he wanted the business to succeed. And so he signed up and said like, hey, I think marketing should carry a revenue quota. We're a super quick sales cycle. Like the kind of leads that we get into the funnel are going to turn into revenue if they're really good. And he signed up for that. And that was his, his proactive way, I think, of establishing the fact that he wanted the business to do well. That's great. Just out of curiosity, because I know this, 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 this will be interesting. When you guys did that, did, did the BDR, SDR team start to report to marketing or did they always by chance? I'm just curious. No. No, they reported the sales, but Jared um, was very, very closely aligned with the guy who oversaw our inbound program under Kevin. His name was Derek Jankowski. And so he was very tightly aligned. And then Jordan, who was under Jared, he and Derek were like peers in the same way that Got me it. and uh, Jared were. Peers. Got it. That's fantastic. And so his revenue number wasn't the total revenue number. It was an inbound revenue number for patient pop. That's right. Got it. Got it. Got it. Were you compensated on that inbound patient on that inbound number? I owned every dollar of revenue that came through the patient pop organization from marketing and sales and channel to customer success upsells, even though I didn't own the team. Got it. Okay. That's excellent. We haven't even talked about customer success, um, which, which would be not, we should have you back to talk about that because I think it's another important relationship that needs to, to exist. Um, what um, one of the other trends we're seeing is sort of this trend in sales where the VP of sales is there 18 months, mm -hmm. right? you know, and it's, and it's probably shrinking at this point. What do you think is the solution to that problem? I think, you know, I think I know the answer you're going to give, but I'm curious if it's the same one. Yeah. My answer is founder education. Um, I work with early stage founders mm -hmm. all day long. That's what I do. And part of what I do is help them make the right selection for their first VP of sales. Right. And I'll often see like, Hey, we've got this great candidate in, he went to Stanford and he worked at Slack and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, great. We sell a $3,000 product or a $50,000 product. So the ACVs aren't aligned. The sales cycle is not aligned. His education doesn't matter. Like all these different things that don't line up, but like they're very much in love with this logo or this resume or this, this company or whatever it is. And to me, it's pretty simple. It's not simple, but let me break it down in a more simple way. I think I worked out well at Patient Pop because I sold and managed things at that average contract value. I sold and managed things at that sales cycle and velocity. I sold and managed things in the way that we went to market. Everything that we were doing at Patient Pop, I had already done at a 20 rep level at Zocdoc. So I was a de-risked choice for VP. Now, if they would have gone out and said, hey, we're working in the healthcare space and we want to hire this guy who works with hospital systems that buy a million dollar equipment over, the, over a 12 month sales cycle and we want to put him into a, a, a eight day sales cycle, it doesn't work. So founders need to be educated on the things that matter in your first VP of sales hire instead of being so in love with logos and resumes and education. Yeah, don't hire the pedigree. I, I see this a lot coming out of, out of bigger companies like Oracle or Salesforce and, um, and people love to hire them for startups. I was like, wait a minute, like this, this SVP at Salesforce, yeah, you're, you're, you know, yeah, you've raised $20 million in your series A, but this person has never built a process to save their life. Right. And, and by process, I mean an early stage process, not that they can yep. follow one or, or uh, manipulate one or, or maneuver it. and manipulate, meaning move the chess pieces around, not in a negative mm -hmm. way, not bad manipulation. Um, and I see that a lot. Right. Like I was talking to someone and they have a one of the easiest, well-known companies in the world. Um, you'd all know the name. And they had a small SDR, BDR team. And they were going to look at somebody. They were like, we want someone from Oracle, from here, from there. I'm like. Guys, you guys are still calling, and you'd be shocked if I told you the name, you're still calling of a spreadsheet. Like, I don't care if they hmm. worked at Oracle. They don't know how to build that process, in my opinion, right? Like that's, and, and it's, there is this misalignment of pedigree versus reality, you know, and people need to hire the reality. I, believe me, I've lost jobs where it's like, oh, Richard, you know, you know all this stuff, but we won, you know, we hired someone who's, who's actually sold to HR. And I'm like, okay, well, good luck. Six months later, Richard, we made the wrong decision. Yeah, I know. I knew it six months ago. So, um, so that, that happens Well, that. So, so that, so I also took that back to what you said earlier, proper aligned expectations, 
Mm -hmm. right? People need to have their expectations aligned about what this VP of sales role is and how it should be done, right? Um, and not what they want or what their, their VCs want them to do, right? So Totally. So what, so, so that sort of, that, that brings us sort of almost to the end. Um, you got a couple of minutes and we always sort of change this up a little bit. And, and our question back for you, Justin, is how can we help you, right? What, what can Scott, I know Scott's not here, but how can we help you um, aside from, you know, giving you the like and the comments on your LinkedIn content, right? Um, yeah. What can we do for, what can we do for, for the Justin experience? Is that what it's called? Yeah, the official Justin, close enough. Uh, you know, I you should change it. It's officially changed to the Justin experience. <laughs> love it. No, I, I guess uh, I love that one. Say, honey, yeah. I'm the name. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll kind of shout out, I guess, for the, you know, what, where you can find more information about me, I think is probably the most helpful thing, which is the official Justin.com. Uh, you can also, like you mentioned earlier, like people know me from LinkedIn, as embarrassing as that is, mm -hmm. but people know me from LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, I want to learn how to do it really well. I, I help people with that. And I, I do it at a place called the LinkedIn playbook.com. It's the LinkedIn playbook.com. Or again, you can just book time with me on my website at the official justin.com. That's awesome, man. Well, we really, really appreciate it. I'm sorry. I know Scott literally, I have the text right here on my phone where he's like, I'm really bummed that my babysitter canceled and I can't be there with Justin. So, uh, he's super apologetic for it. But we, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, last, super last question. Um, surf and sales. You coming? You're not coming. What's going on, man? What when if, is it? My cell phone number so I can just text her. When is it? You're sitting in front of the date. Yeah, it's, it's, I know that's part of it, right? It's uh, February 24th through 28th this year. Um, so it's last week of February. Um, back in Costa Rica, we're going to change locations uh, eventually, actually in, in the next year. Uh, but we're going back to Costa Rica because we know that it works. We know people enjoy it. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. So, so you coming? As long as I don't have to surf, and as long as I'm not in Mexico City, I'll be there. Well, I, I want to know about Mexico City. What's wrong with Mexico City? No, I go there a lot. So as long as I'm not there, I'll uh, I'll be ah, in gotcha. Costa Rica. Got it. Yeah. Got it. yeah. So as far that's a really good question. We don't talk about enough is that you don't have to surf. Surf lessons are always included. I actually have to stop surfing. Uh, and it's not that I was that great at it, but I have to stop because I've got bad ears and the doctor said, no more, Richard. So uh, there, I got double back surgery myself. So yeah. I'm with you. So there's, there are plenty of people who take that surfing time and um, some do a little bit of work, but we really encourage people to go do, go for, go for the walk on the beach and enjoy where you're at and just chill, right? Like that's part of this conference is it's not all work. It's not dream force. It's very different, right? Nice. So, so cool. we'd love to have you if you can make it. So cool. Let's, let's do it. Send me the, uh, the place to, to go for tickets and I'll grab one. Uh, we'll do it, man. It's pretty easy. Surfandsales.com, but I'll email you the link. So awesome. All right, Justin, sorry Sweet. for the big plug at the end, everybody. That wasn't intended. That was not scripted. So, uh, Justin, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Appreciate you having me, man.